before we jump into today's topic, it's important that listeners understand that this episode and the contents of this episode will share stories and general information on financial planning only. With this in mind, if something we talk about today resonates with your personal situation, this is purely coincidental. Everything we discuss will be non-specific to individual needs, and before any action is taken by listeners, we recommend you seek professional advice and conduct your own independent research on your financial situation. Should you require more information about UK pensions, benefits, or other financial-specific information, we recommend heading to the UK government website for the latest updates. If you seek more specialist advice for your finances, we recommend heading to unbiased.co.uk to find your local financial advisor. Now that's out of the way, let's crack on with the episode. We are the unfairer sex, four women, four glasses of wine and a whole world of problems to navigate. Yes, there's going to be some rage, but there's also going to be a hell of a lot of laughing, learning, catharsis and camaraderie along the way. So grab a glass of wine and join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to the unfairer sex podcast. We are delighted to have with us today Lena Patel, who is a multi-award winning Chartered Financial Planner at ISJ Financial Planning Limited. Lena was Financial Advisor of the Year at the Growth Investors Awards and was the first female and person of colour to have ever won this award. Welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into financial planning? So I've been in financial service school for nearly 30 years now. So I left school having uh, miserably failed my A-levels. So... It was basically get married and get a job. So ended up in Barclays, um, spent 17 years there working my way up through the ranks. And then I did five, I took my financial advisor exams at Barclays. Then spent another five years at Santander doing financial advice. And then I set up my own business after a little bit of a blip in between for a few months, which I'll talk about later. But yes, I set up my own business coming up this nearly seven years ago, and it's been amazing. Wow, I like the fact we're already five minutes in and there's already a blip. There's already a cliffhanger. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's interesting that you mentioned the the getting married part. Was that something that you wanted to do or is that something that you felt that you had to? Uh, It was an arranged marriage. So in our culture, it was um, expected at that age, really, just to get married because I wasn't allowed to go to university. So, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So it was interesting. However, it, things have changed so quickly. Five years later, my my sister actually went to uni and she was allowed to go. So it's amazing how a few years can change and map someone's life. Um, if you had the opportunity again, would you go to university or are you, are you happy with the path that you've gone down? Ah, interesting question. Um, twofold, I guess. I had my children very young, so I'm now 47. My oldest is 25, so that was good in a sense that we still have a lot to do together now but I do feel I missed out on the uni life partying and so I'm making up for it now <laughs> but yeah I think um, I would like I would like to have gone I did go to look at the university and stuff but um just didn't happen at the time but yeah it's all worked out in the end I mean you are a, f- a fellow um within the financial um is what's the correct way of saying that you are just a fellow or is it a fellow of something yeah fellow of the CII the CII, because that 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 takes some going. That's not a short amount of time that's taken into achieving that. So whilst you may have missed the university experience, you certainly got the um, the exams, didn't you? In a different way. I did. Yeah, I think um, I did my diploma through a uh, through at Barclays, but then chartered was um, it was a path that was I was in a way felt I had to take, um, but it was hard work. But it's very it's very rewarding, and there's very few women, very few Asian people. I was about to say, I think you're a really good example of 
uh, showing people generally, but women in particular, who maybe have taken that path of getting married and having kids early and then think, oh, no, I've missed out on university and I've missed doing all that stuff. I can't go into that route that actually it's possible. Definitely. I mean, I took my um, when I first became an advisor, I was a single parent with two children. And the guy who asked me to apply for a job in his team was 16 white, male, strong. And I was very none of the people in your team look like me. What do you think that I've got that nobody else has got? And it's his belief in me that's got me to where I am today because I didn't have, have the belief in myself. But um applied for a job against other guys and got through. And uh, it, it's, it's amazing what you can do. But I suppose at that point, I had to, I've got to do something with my life to be better for the children. So, uh, But you can do it, but it's hard. It's harder with children and life. <laughs> it gets messy at times. Absolutely. I also um, met Lena at, so my uh, my husband is a financial advisor as well. I met him, so he went to go and get his certificate after being chartered, and I met Lena at the ceremony. And you're absolutely right, walking into that room, I, I remember nudging my husband being like, there's so many of you here, there's so many white men in suits, you know, and it was, it was quite striking for me that there was only a, a handful of people who didn't look like that in the room and um i saw lena standing by herself and went over and said hello because probably you were the the odd one out in in a way and i wanted to come and come and say hello and hear your story more than i wanted to hear anyone else's so i'm delighted i did that because it means you're now on today's on today's podcast yeah it's amazing what happens it was a very it was an interesting yeah it was right i was it was an early morning start for us very few people there I was one of the very few people with my children there, which was a lovely day um, for them to celebrate that moment as well. So we'd just been to my oldest son's graduation the same year. So it's a, it just shows you can achieve anything you want to. Absolutely. So before we get into the nitty gritty of financial planning, would you like to share your sorry, what did you say moment? I know you've got one prepared. Yes. Well, I've got a couple. But the most important one was really at many events, conferences, I'm always seen to be the admin person never to be the person that was actually have her own business and I was sitting next to a guy at the table and he just turned around and said to me well can you just take the notes and pass them on to me when we're done and I just looked at him and I was like pardon I was like why don't you take the notes and pass them on to me and he says oh aren't you here with the event providers and I said no I'm an advisor and I run my own business and I think that's what made me realize that I don't go to many things especially particularly with um local events with the CII and things like that, because they are very much pale, male, stale. Things are changing slowly. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's very difficult to walk into a room when you are the odd one out. Nobody in that room probably feels that way. They don't look at you and think, oh my God, she's brown or whatever it may be. But for you, I think it's interesting to be able to walk into someone and think you belong or you're one of them. Was there a marked reaction or a notable reaction from the person who said, oh, aren't you from the event and aren't you from Take Notes when you informed him of who you were? Yeah, he was really apologetic. I think it's just he assumed that that's just he was later. <laughs> probably, <didn't> see, <laughs> probably not seen many people like me being an advisor and um, being there in my own right, I think. Uh, and it is a lot of assumptions we make about people that they a certain look a certain way. They're a certain type of person. Um, and I don't think he thought that anything more of it, really. He, did. he was very apologetic, bless him. <laughs> and hopefully he didn't do, he has. He won't have done it again since. And it no. was probably the right way to go about it, you know, and just to say, actually, no, I'm I'm not. And this is my job. Yeah. And, and then he felt awful about it. And I know uh, Ellie and I both work in tech. So we've both discussed 
at length, I think, the times when similar things have happened to us. Anne-Marie, you worked uh, in project management. You've had a few of those, like, make me a coffee, do the notes things. Em's had very similar things as well. So um, I've... I've uh, been the only woman in a group of quite senior people with ministers when I worked in government and I wasn't introduced on in the room because I was the only woman and it was assumed that I was there as a secretary and it was my boss said oh there's Rhiannon's there as well she's the deputy director of this and and there there wasn't an apology and there wasn't because the minister didn't probably didn't care to be honest but he almost certainly made that made that mistake again but you're absolutely right with regards to conferences going along to things and when you are from a field that is heavily male it is very it can be really difficult being the only only woman the only person of color the only you know whatever the whatever the only thing you are it doesn't it does feel a bit strange um and i definitely i had a conversation with somebody at a at tech conference I was on a table of all men and there was one black man on the table with with me and so there was me and a black guy and then all white men and or they were all 60 and he I could see that he was he was far more uncomfortable than I was because there were so few people of color in that room um and it made it worse that we were having dinner and the entire waiting staff were black and yeah. he felt he I could see him looking around and he I, I said are you okay and he was like this it feels horrible I, I hate all of this and it was that mm. he was the only black person in one of the only black people in the room at a table and then being waited on by black people it was it he really struggled so I complete yeah and that's exactly what it was like at the growth investor awards exactly the same scenario <laughs> it was interesting because on the awards I took my daughter with me and she was sat on a table of all white men. There's a couple of ladies on the table. And exactly what you say, the wait waiters and waitresses are all Asian or black or whatever. And it is interesting. And, and But the thing is, I think a lot of the time, the room doesn't see that. You just feel individual. For, for me, it's like I feel, oh, there's only five Asian people in this room and there's 700 people here. Why is it so, in this day and age, still the case? And that's why it meant so much to me, because I think it, there's lots of awards for lots of different things. But... It's just raising the profile for women and being a an example that, it, you know, I mean, I don't see it like that. But the same way people will say to me that you are an inspiration, that you do do it as a single parent with three kids. And it's it's but you can do it. So it's but, um, yeah, the challenges are there, I guess. So that's a question I was going to ask. Do you look around and do you feel discomfort or do you look around and then look across the room and see your daughter there and think what an inspiration you must be and how brilliant it is that you are sitting at that table? Um, it's been, she's, she's seen me go through a really difficult breakdown and just be, be on my knees, going to sell my business, not just finish it all and just die in a corner. But over the last four years, she's seen me because she's been at home grow to the point of where we went to the graduation this year and we won the award and they're very supportive and I think that's the point for anybody of any age is that no matter how dark times get you can always come back from it um and but it just takes strength and determination and sometimes it's difficult because that you expect your parents to be infallible they are your rock so when they're struggling um it's difficult for them because at that age of where they're not little where they can just think oh yeah it's okay this is happening and but they're experiencing it with you so yeah it was it, it was nice for her to be there and she was sitting next to a guy and she's 
yeah, he was trying to talk to her and she was like really uncomfortable. I can imagine being at 18, 19, 20, trying to network in a group. But she was very good. She held her own. And um, I think it was good for her to say, you know, you could be anything you want to be. You've just got to get your mind to set us to where you want to be. It must be so refreshing as well for the others on that table. Like I, um, probably about six months ago now, my boss and I were sat on a call and it was with another woman and another person. I think he was Asian. So it was an Asian, a black and two women on this call. And we just looked at each other and went, I don't think we've ever in the history of working in tech been on a call that's been that diverse before. Yeah. And it was a real moment for us. And we were like um, slacking each other uh, on, on the call being like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? It's like, oh my, yeah, you know, this is, this is a thing. And it's kind of sad that it is a thing, but also refreshing, I think, as we're seeing more of that. And again, maybe having your daughter at the table was a refreshing moment for those that she was sat next to. And yourself, yeah. obviously. I think it's definitely important that we, financial services needs more women. We need more women because we need, we've got more and more females that need support financially, that are looking at their finances. People are pursuing their careers a lot later at age like for me I got married very early but now people are having their careers it's a different generation and I think there's more and more of a need I'm you know I find a lot of clients will come to me because I am a female. And I wonder I wonder whether having it specifically around uh, around finances whether uh, if if you're a woman either because you've got financial difficulties or you've got a lot of money and you're trying to work out what to do with it and how do you invest well and how do you do various other stuff like going to a man like an older man you might feel a bit patronized you might like I don't know and, and maybe you wouldn't be they wouldn't actively be doing it but it's nice to be able to go to a woman and say I've, this is my situation or yeah and I've I've got these problems or I've got this great thing that I need help with um I think yeah I, I imagine generally for me I don't care whether I'm speaking to a man or a woman about anything but I can see that when it comes to money it would be quite a nice thing yeah, I think it's definitely about a connection with somebody. And sometimes when you've had life experience, the challenges that women have been through, whether it's childbirth or whatever those, you know, anything career-wise, you can't get on whatever they may have been at the time. But just being talking to somebody that can actually understand you can sometimes be a little bit more supportive, particularly when I deal with um, a lot of divorcing or bereaved or single people. And that's a, that's a challenge, you know. I'm a member of like an Asian single parents group and I see a lot of ladies come to me through there just because they feel I may understand a little bit more because I'm actually doing what I'm sort of preaching practicing what I'm preaching but there's lots of men out there do a great job I'm not saying that they don't but sometimes I think it's you know some women don't gel with me and they will find someone else that they do can find work with but um, I think it's important to find someone that gets you because it's a longer term relationship and really understanding and getting you to think about what's important in life it's not always about the return on your money. It's more about the return on your life, I think. I think and that's a real shift in when I was in 2008 selling widgets to clients, you know, selling a, a structured bond and it's three years and the FTSE goes up, you make your money. It's, it's a different ball game now that we're doing financial planning. It's a completely different mindset. And that's why I find the career so rewarding because you are changing people's lives. Um, and that's so it's so interesting you say that because my husband spoke, he used to work in a bank as well. That's where he started. And he said one of, the, one of the motivations he found to getting into financial planning rather than remaining in the bank was because he felt that he was always selling products to people. Whereas with financial planning, at least you're trying to support them into making best out of their situation. And obviously, you're, as you just mentioned, you're, you're trying to 
help them um, secure a good future for themselves, you know, and that was a motivation for him. So it's interesting that you say something very similar. Yeah, we spend a lot of time. I spend a lot of my time getting clients to accept it's okay to spend money now. I think we've brought up with a generation of very much we've got to save, 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 save for the retirement, but we're all looking at that 60 or 65 or 67. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can do phased retirement. You can retire early. Um, you can get that camper van and go. I've got a client that's just doing it right now and they're having a fall of a life. And they just think that if they hadn't have seen me, they'd already got an advisor, but if they hadn't have seen me, they'd still be working five years later. Yeah. Why have you wasted five years working when you didn't need to? Um so it's definitely sort of understanding your potential um, for income and lifestyle through cash flow modelling, I think. So interesting. You mentioned that you had a couple of, sorry, sorry, what did you say? Did you want to go into your second one? So I think the biggest one for me as to why I set my own business up was I was um, courted when I was at Santander by a company, um, a guy who I used to work with at Barclays. Um, went to work with him for five year, uh, five months and he sacked me. Um, and I was taken to a room and it's pretty much like, you're finished. I've just given up a company car, salary, all the comforts, got three children. And it came down to misogyny and racism. Um, and at the time, I didn't realise it. He was basically, you know, with somebody, you're not the right fit. Um but about 12 months later, I walked into a room where there's a conference and um, a lady came over to me and she said, oh, are you Lena? <clears throat> and I said, yes. And she said, oh, well, I work for such and such. And I just wanted you to know that it wasn't you. It was them because the same thing happened to me. And it's that moment of where you think. I just couldn't I couldn't function when, it, when I when everything fell apart. And I thought, right, what am I going to do? I could either get another job or. Um, I could take the easy option and set up my own business. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, it was uh, not the easy option at the time, obviously, but I <laughs> yeah. still want the opportunity to take anything away from me ever again, which is when I started my route to charter because I felt as if I needed to prove to somebody out there that I was worthy of this position and I could do better. And I was, it wasn't me, it was them. But, you know, they closed ranks. They wouldn't let me set up on my own within the same firm. They were large. Uh, organization in you know vertically integrated into they could have just let me get on with another position and set my own business up with them but they didn't they all closed ranks and um yeah interesting now if I look back now if I could have the conversation unfortunately he's died now but I wonder what he would have thought if he saw me now as you know six seven years later it, it won't have been one person as well it would it will have been a team of people who yeah. would all have said that he's doing the right thing and he would have made that decision and it's yeah. it's that horrible go on sent to head office and I was obviously distraught crying and I was sent out literally at the back door didn't even have to sign out or just go out that back door and it's that how could you uh treat people like that but it was meritocracy at the time and when you're in it you can't see it you feel as it's you and that then feeds into everything in your life your all your relationships you just feel that your self-worth has gone and somebody's come along and just taken it away without any reason so yeah it was- unlikely when you already felt like you're already maybe a an odd one out in the organization and then you're like oh well it wasn't good enough at all and it yeah and it just kicks you when you're already doubtful yeah I was I was gonna ask how how did you pick yourself up from that it must have been absolutely devastating and then you will have left been shown out the back door and you won't have known 
is it because I'm a female? Is it because I'm, is it because I don't look like you or is it because I'm not good enough? So it doesn't sound like you were given enough of a reason. So how did you, I would have been devastated and I'm not sure what I would have said to myself to pick myself back up. So how did you manage? Um, it was quite messy. It went to court and I remember my solicitor saying to me at the time, he says, now it was a good friend of mine. He said to me, we've just got to, what is the emotional cost of this? You know, you could fight. Their pockets are a lot deeper than yours. You know, you're never going to win this is, is, is the point. For me at that point, it was very much got my losses, deal with the situation. And I don't know. I don't know how I put myself up if I look back now, but I did. I managed to set my own business up at that point um, and thought I can invest in myself and believe in myself. And I think that I knew that I was good at what I did. I knew I was a good person and I knew I was good with clients. I'd never had a complaint to a toward up until that point, I'd been given advice and never had a problem in my life. So I knew deep down it wasn't me. But when the big guns are coming on you heavy, mm. it's very difficult to see clearly. Because I think at the time, my own family, not my family, but my partner at the time was blaming me as well, which is very difficult because it, it just felt as if I couldn't defend myself because there's nothing to really defend because I couldn't see what I'd done wrong. Yes, it's but also the person, the person that you want supporting you, is also then turned their back on you as well. That yeah. must have been really painful. It's it was difficult. I think sometimes you know when people can't see and they think, well, it must have been your fault. You must have done something wrong. People just don't get rid of you like that one day. But they clearly yeah. didn't feel that I was the right fit. Oh, I don't know what it was at the time, and I think it was definitely. It had happened to a couple of people there after me. It's the shock of it as well, isn't it? It's the shock of like when that kind of thing happens and you again you're just like oh, you, you have a very literal I'm sorry what did he say because you just you, you're trying to process what's going on I I years ago when I was very new in tech got a written warning in the job that I was in there'd been nothing that had led to this and I I got a you know normally there's a verbal a, a verbal warning and a this and that and the other and I got a written warning for something that was so I think I was like two minutes late for something or and and it went straight to this thing and I was like one of the only women in the organization I was uh I was relatively young I was relatively new and I was just like what the fuck like I was just so shocked and then I was I was already doubting myself whether I fit in that team whether I was good enough because I was new in tech and all this stuff and I left the I let like I I left the room and just sort of slammed a door open and left and was like shaking and crying and was just like what yeah. what do I do? I, exactly and it's I, such a shock. Yeah, I was like crying in the car. I remember, and I think it's exactly the same thing. There was no warning. I was just pulled into a room and that was it. My life was falling apart. Got a mortgage. Got children. I just it was all supposed to be wonderful. Sold a dream and it was going to be great. And I was going to have my own practice and. You know, but, you know, and I have, and I have got a lovely business now. And I think it spurred me on to fuck you moments. You know what I mean? It was, I will prove to you deep down. I knew it was there deep down. And that's why the childhood, it wasn't an easy route. It was really hard. And and I failed lots of exams. But it's the pure determination that you think, I will never let someone treat me that way ever again and you know and it wasn't take away something that you deserve yeah it was it was really painful and I think yeah I'm not sure how I still stood up for a few years after that but uh it's it's amazing what um you can achieve I guess afterwards so yeah it's been good
Do you mind me asking what made you so sure that it was a misogynist and racist situation? So that's the reason that you were let go. I think um, it was a husband and wife and son team. The wife was very much, you had to go to another room to ask her a question. She was an advisor. She was like an admin person within the team. She would then go over to the husband and ask the question. She would then relay the question back to me. I wasn't allowed to talk to him directly as the... Oh God. I know it's very, very bizarre. I didn't, I found myself, and that's basically what it was. You could tell. And afterwards, when I spoke to this other lady, she said it was, she was treated, they were saying that we were talking about them. They could hear it through the walls. Well, we both couldn't have been the same because it was a, I, she started working in the same position after I'd left. So it was all very much, very strange. And it happened very quickly in five months, you know, very, strange as to what they I don't know why they courted me for so long to take me on to then just do that I don't get it but that wasn't that was well it's my next question because it feels like if you're maybe it is that you show some sort of uncomfortableness to that process or that you know that setup because it could be that they knew you were amazing they had a way of doing business which obviously seems quite antiquated to us and then you were dropped into that and you're like, hang on a second. Like, did you ever show any signs of, I don't, I don't understand this. Why can't I go talk to him directly? And then he maybe felt like, well, she's not, she's not playing ball. You know, like yeah. she should just, maybe is that, it just feels like, as you said, a weird thing to, it was so a they know who you are. <laughs> make a judgment. Yeah, five months, it's in a long time. You've just taken, you're going from another company, you do your training, you're getting through their competence. So you're not really having a lot of, time with that person anyway it was a very maybe that's what it was I think the thing is I'll never know unfortunately yeah. you'd like to have a conversation with them and really just understand what was going on for them but yeah you just yeah it, it, we can't all be wrong I suppose as women and it's and at the end of the day it's just the two of them now and he's not here anymore sadly but uh yeah it is what it is yeah they're lost Yes, loss. definitely. That's the thing. It is massively their loss. When you say that people come to you specifically because you're a female and you've had, you know, a certain culture and you've got a certain perspective, those are all the things that it sounds like that company misses out on because they were too blinkered. So, yeah, they've absolutely lost out. And that must be quite satisfying to know that you've done so, so well. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think it's just because it is very much about partners and meritocracy and, you know, I'm an associate partner, I'm a double partner, I'm a senior partner. But the thing is, if you've got no ethics, it doesn't matter who you are. Um, for me, it's not about the money. It's about the satisfaction of my life and my children and the clients' lives. You know, money will come and go. But I think some people get so stuck up on these titles and um, things that they all stick together and close ranks very quickly. And that's they're all male, all at the higher, you know, head office, all closing ranks and you think mm, okay but you don't expect that in this day and age but unfortunately it happens quite a lot and like you just said just we've had a quick conversation how many of us all just be the same experience like you've just said you went through it when you got a written warning you think when you're going through it you're the only one this is happening to there must be something wrong with you um but clearly not it's happening to a lot of people out there i do think it's quite interesting what you said that you with people closing rank i actually think when you think about it, I think, of course, they're going to do that. Because if you're if you're calling one of them out and saying, you know, you're a misogynist or there's a misogynist culture that you've created, I think people close ranks because they don't want to be associated to it. So rather than admitting that there is a culture and that a few people might be at fault here, they go, well, if we don't admit it, then it can never come back to us. So I think that there is this tendency to protect your own because not only 
are they probably paying your bills as well so that you know your your boss etc but also there's this in your head isn't it of like you don't want to then be labeled as the same as the as the organization that you're working in and it may not even be that you're directly called a misogynist but you let misogynist behavior happen yeah. under your watch and you you fail to say anything and I think that makes you a culprit yeah I think it is I think you know I mean I started my business with a blank bit of paper and no clients it takes some guts to start a business with nothing I've got a restricted covenant from them one from Santander so it was really difficult to where do you get clients from you know you what what can you start you don't have very much cash because you don't expect to start your own business and but yeah. that's what the grit and determination that gives you is that you're going to prove them wrong because they are wrong in what they're doing and it's people yeah it's behavior like that that puts off women from joining the profession because it's a very sales orientated girl and it and it, it feels as if you can't do all the other things like being a mother being having a life enjoying the job just not selling widgets to people it's about helping them live their best lives and I think the more we can do about that portraying it as a career I mean I'm sure my mom still doesn't really know what I do even though I explained <laughs> but if I said I was a doctor a dentist a pharmacist a solicitor she'd be fine oh yeah that's a great job but it's just one of the yeah. things isn't it culturally for us it's um it's not a, a career that's out there um but hopefully one of my children will join, but uh, I don't think so. <laughs> but equally, like, why isn't it considered? Considering like a dentist and a, and a doctor, et cetera, we, we rub shoulders with every kind of year of our life. But why aren't we rubbing shoulders with a financial planner? Do you know what I mean? It, it's like such an interesting thing because money is so personal to so many people that it's um, it makes me smile that it's not considered in the same kind of group of essentials, such as health. Um, well, I think that's a really good point to move on to this, the episode as a whole, because, you know, as you say, Ellie, we don't use financial planners. And I recently had a conversation with two friends, a couple who uh, they they earn a, a, an OK wage, but, you know, they're not rich. And I think people think that financial planning is for rich people and it's about investments and it's about uh, not just about living your best life, but about saving and being able to prepare for the future with lots and lots of money. I have to say I still think that so please enlighten me <laughs> <laughs> why we're talking about financial planning on the unfair sex is um because generally women don't take as much of an interest in their finances as men do it doesn't mean that the advice that is given isn't applicable to everyone. It absolutely is. Um, but what we tend to find is for various reasons, such as uh, women taking time out of their careers, they might then take hits to their pensions. It might be that whilst they're not earning, um, their partner will take on the financial planning or certainly looking after the finances during that period of time. So there becomes situations within um, particular people's lives where it might mean they have less interest in their in their finances. And we tend to see that more women are affected by that. Um, but as I said earlier, it doesn't mean that what we're about to discuss um, can't benefit everyone. So just I, I, I wanted to ask on that point, do you do you think it is that women have less interest in their finances or is it perhaps that women typically perhaps have less finances to do something with. Um, because I know that I, I worry about finances far more than my partner. He loves the idea of spending money and I'm the one that like hobbles it away in little corners. But that's, I, and I haven't done anything with it, not because I'm not interested. It's just because I'm of that mindset where I just want to save in case a disaster happens. I think a lot of it's about our relationship with money and how we were brought up and what our parents were like. And 
all those things that we don't always think about is what our relationship with money is when we start when we were young kids is how money doesn't grow on trees, you know, and it's all that language that we used to use. And now we see so little money as in physical money that my son will say before you'd have to have money to see the ice cream man. But now the man takes Apple Pay. So there's no excuse. I've got no money because it's like, mom, you've got your phone or you've got your watch. So I can have whatever I want. And it's really about that relationship and understanding what is important to you about money and what that gives you. So prime example is that she earns a lot of money. She's very, very clever, but she's just not interested. She just leaves it to my brother-in-law. However, then that puts a lot of pressure on him because, oh, I'm not good at finances. I just leave it to him. That is the, that is really difficult in a relationship. It's about discussing when you get into a relationship what money wants to each of you and how that's going to move forward. But they're not the sexy conversations, are they? Nobody wants to sit down and go, well, let's have a money day because this is really fun for me because it's not. And money's not something anyone likes talking about. And that whether you've got money or you don't have money, it's not something anyone likes talking about. So I used to work at the insolvency service. And um, one of the things when I did my training is people, the the trainers said people would prefer to talk about sex than money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in an interview, they tell you so like, basically, it would be this big cathar- cathartic thing. They would just tell you anything because they could get everything off their chest now, now that they were telling you about money. And I think it's the same in relationships. Um, I think to have those conversations, you know, what debt do you have? And like debt is a scary thing to people. And actually, like debt isn't necessarily a bad thing um, if you use it properly. Um, and and I, I do think it's it's a, a thing people don't like discussing. But also, as you say, uh, the way we were brought up with money. So I think actually, you know, our so we're all sort of 30, 35 ish. Uh, us three and um, I guess our parents generation I think probably still dads did most of the money and had most of the money the my mum certainly stopped working for four years when she had me and my brother and so my dad was the one who had the majority of the money and so then it's normally the men that are controlling most of it and I wonder whether then there's this assumption that that same thing's going to happen as we get older um I personally went well I want to always have control of my money I've never had a joint bank account with any of my partners um I was like no I'm we've shared money but I've never had it in one account um and actually interestingly on like men taking control of the money my current partner's mum recently said to me something about her husband controlling all the money and said to me oh you need to think carefully about when you hand over your con- the control to your partner to her son and I was like he's never having control of my money mm. ne- never <laughs> that's never happening <laughs> um not because I don't trust him but because it's my money <laughs> it's really important to whatever stage in life you are is always to maintain financial independence I'll say to my son he's 25 it's always remain financially independent because it's really important through life it's not always easy because you have children and then one doesn't work you know one's having time off to look after children whatever it may be but if you can try and keep an element of independence financially it makes a life a lot easier for you as an individual um but we never taught this stuff we we weren't taught this at school were we about how to budget and how to think about money it's just my dad was um it was a really bad gambler and he just, it was awful when I was growing up as a child, you know, it was like, so win days were great, like lose days, it was, and he lost everything to it. But the addiction within, with the money is, had an impact upon how I deal with my life and money because I've always been a worrier about money, funnily enough. 
until he suddenly died at the age of 55. He went to work and never came home. And what made me think was life is too short about to keep worrying about money. It's about taking control and dealing with it. And the, the easier it is if you can address it and understand it and be happy and comfortable with it rather than just brushing it aside and thinking I'll deal with that later because years go by so quickly and life passes us by. So it's a really big animal, money is, I think, and it affects us all in very different ways. And I've had clients that don't even talk to each other in their 50s, 60s about how worried they are about um, their, how worried they are about paying the mortgages off and what's going to happen. It's only when you're in the room and you can actually ask the questions, they look at each other and think, we've never actually spoken to each other about this. And that's when the light bulb moment comes and you think, okay, let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. Let's move on. And isn't that a scary thing? It could be that you get into 60, 70 and going, one of us is going to die at some point. And then how do we deal with the money? Or like one person has control of the money and they don't, someone doesn't know how to access it or yeah, all sorts of things. It is. And it's also about um, when uh, people divorce, separate, they get into relationships and don't think about cohabiting and marriage and what impact that has. And nobody wants to talk about those things because they're not the most romantic of things. (laughs) But unfortunately, in this day and age, we have to because... Now more and more women are working because they need to work, whereas maybe our parents didn't need to work. Um, but the demands of life now mean that we're all having to work. And so it's really having those open and honest conversations. And they're difficult conversations at times because there are people that are earning not the same all the time. There's an you know, imbalance in income. But how do you balance that out? What is always going to work? Because if you find yourself you've given... 10 years to raising children and all of a sudden your man has a midlife crisis and walks out then you're left unfortunately especially if you're not married with nothing and then where where do you go and I see a lot of clients like that and I've, you know women that have just not thought about what the future holds because they think every day is going to be the same I've also had experiences with addiction not myself personally but I know that's why my parents um, marriage broke down um, my mum has an addiction to to spending and my dad unfortunately got tired of of um paying for that addiction and not having anything to show for his years of work and that was quite tough to watch and I think that's why I'm a bit more careful with money but I think what's really interesting about it is when I get it could just be because of my husband's profession but Joe was so um determined where we were dating not to share finances and initially I took that as an insult I was like I don't understand why you don't want to commit to me I don't understand why you don't want to do what my dad did to my mum. And my dad made a few comments my way as well about, you know, well, I gave everything to your mum and, you know, I supported her and, you know, financially we were, we were one. And so I was hearing it from my dad that it was unusual and that it was, he couldn't understand it. And then all of a sudden it's like, Joe, I can't understand it. You know, I need you to explain to me what I've done wrong, that you don't trust me with your money. What do you think I'm going to do? Run off with your money. Um, And it's not until I went to university, I studied law and then one of my lectures the person, um, my lecturer turned around and said, uh, don't don't marry for love, you know, or if you if you are marrying for love, make sure that you've got a contract in place. And it was such a wake up call to be like, oh, right. OK, there's there's it's not just in the moment. You've got a whole life after a, after a marriage, you've got a whole life with your partner or, you know, after your partner. And um, I think one is that you just touched on there, Lena, that we're not getting educated early enough. And so actually, if you're coming into relationships quite young, and you see your parents in a particular thing or, you know, a society is telling you one thing. It's very easy, I think, to follow in those same footsteps. And I think I'm appreciative, you know, if my 60 grand 
university degree taught me anything it's uh you know to to question things and to not necessarily walk into things blindly so it was uh it's an interesting thing that yeah I was so prepared to give all my money away and it took my uh, my partner to say absolutely not and, and a law professor to be like like don't don't lead with just love have some common sense behind that <laughs> I think that leads us very nicely into fuck you money which is otherwise known as an amount of wealth that enables an individual to reject traditional social behaviors and niceties of conduct without fear of consequences so it's a pot of money that gives um, an individual autonomy, power, and the ability to remove themselves from a toxic situation, um, but also security if you were to lose your job or decide to change career or lifestyle. So it's not always a bad partner leaving you on your own. It can also be that you choose to change career or, again, have a decision made that wasn't necessarily your decision that you wanted to make, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always had a fuck you fund, and I see a lot of clients that do. A lot of women do have a little bit of money that they're squirreled away for one reason or another. And for me... It has a lot of connection to my childhood because my mum was always stressing about money. And in the end, they got divorced because she just very much like uh, Ellie said, that, you know, you can't, she couldn't cope. She couldn't cope. Mm. But <clears throat> she put up with it for how many years my granddad told her to leave when he, I was six months old and she divorced after I was 24. So she put up with a lot all those years and what a waste oh. of a life really in a way. But it's... It's the ability to save for that fund when all the pressures are on. I think at the minute we're feeling a lot of pressure, cost of living, interest rates are rising with mortgages. And I think it's very difficult to find that money. But it's about the discipline from the beginning. Really important to set your intentions from the very beginning as to where you budget and what's important in life. And I think we spend a lot of, not a lot of time focusing on that and life takes over. Um, and I think that's that's where we go. I think it's really difficult. I see lots of women now freezing their eggs, which I've never really experienced probably five years ago. I never thought about it. But now people are looking at alternatives and what's important to them financially and really thinking about where we go. Well, and and um, one of the things just on the, the sort of fuck you money thing is is I've heard people say, oh, you know, women now, they can just up and leave and get divorced and do what they like and lots of women are leaving families and things and I think for like this this whole uh I've I, I'd never heard of a fuck you fund or having money squirreled away before Ellie you mentioned it a few months ago um and I think because more women are doing this and women have a job have more jobs and earn more money they're able to have that autonomy and make a tough decision to leave a marriage that they're not happy in, which previously might they might not have been able to because they didn't have that financial autonomy. They didn't have the ability to to set up a new life, um, which I think is a really positive thing that people can leave horrible situations. But as Ellie said, it's also not just about leaving horrible situations. It's about coming up with a you know a new opportunity or or moving into something new. But that that in particular, I think, is really important that we're able to do. Also, I think we've definitely spoken about this before as well. So when we're, we're looking at, um, so again, I, I sometimes get criticised for the fact that Joe and I don't share our money. And I remember once there was a comment made to me that if I really loved Joe, that I would sell all of my assets to put money forward for a deposit. And in that moment, I said, well, what does that leave me with? I'm, I'm dating someone who earns more money than I do. If I sell this one piece of asset, that's the only, that, that is my fuck you if I'm gone completely. Um, just to prove that I, lo I love a guy, it doesn't make any sense to me when the person that I'm dating can recover recover that pot, that savings pot, a lot easier than I can. When I look at Joe and I, me having financial independence isn't just about myself. 
if Joe, for whatever reason, got ill, he couldn't work, if Joe suddenly died, I wanted to make sure that at any one point, both of us, I put us both in an economically strong position. Whereas I think if you just focus on one individual as the as the earner and that one person being completely responsible for bringing the, you know, being the breadwinner and the other person being completely codependent on that person, I think that creates vulnerability for both parties, not just the one person who's codependent. Um, and for me, it was always, you know, I, I love Joe and I, I love him enough that I want to push myself, put myself in the most financially secure position, not only if Joe ever left me, but actually it makes us both strong when we're still together as well. And that seems to me to make sense. Um, Lena, yeah, Lena, when you're advising couples, um, perhaps young couples or people who have just got married or intending to get married, do you have a, a set suggestion or do you do you listen to? Is it different for everyone or do you have your own ideas of what it should look like? And that's what you advise them. Um, it's about the conversation between the between two people, because I think I've had a cat recently that's one's earning 60,000 and one's earning 450,000 and they're two ladies together. And you think, well, where is They've been together 18 years, and but where is where do you have the point where it's never going to really be equal? But you've had that conversation about what it's what's important to you and how those assets are divided, what you're putting into the relationship together, um, and what works for those people at that time. I think every situation is individual. I see a lot of clients who where the man is earning a lot of money, the women is, is sitting at home looking after the children. And it's a big job because dropping off, picking up, constantly ferrying, attending their things is a full-time job. But you're not getting paid for that. There's no pension contribution. There's no sick pay. There's no benefit of that. And sometimes you lose your self-worth because you find yourself in a position that I can't go to work because I can't afford the childcare. I've got two kids. How do I get myself out of the situation? And that's where the problem occurs because when they started that relationship, the conversation was never had that, yes, you can stay at home and look after kids, but she's got no financial security now because they're not married. She's not got a pension. He's got all the money. And how is it ever going to become equal? But that's what's really dangerous about it, isn't it? Because it's it's his money. So even if you're as a couple and you've agreed that the woman or the stay-at-home parent is the one who's going to take the impact on the, um, on the ability to earn money, um, What's really frustrating for me then is suddenly that pot of money which you've agreed is going to support both of you is suddenly his money and anything that perhaps the other person wants is our pocket money, right? It's, well, okay, yep. well, here's £10 for dinner or here's £5 to buy, you know, our children new shoes or there's a very cheap pair of shoes. But, you you know, get my point. It's that money then becomes a decision that the the earner gets to make. And that's quite a dangerous situation for anyone who's then codependent on them because you're you're trusting that person to not only make financial decisions in both of your interests and not just their own, but you're also expecting them to be a good moral person who has your best interests at heart. And the problem is that it's very difficult. This is going to sound very cynical, but I don't know how many people you can really trust in life because what comes along in that relationship, what's going on is very, very, everything can change within a moment and you're, got to think about what position you're putting yourself in whether it's male or female because mm. if the woman isn't working then the man's got the pressure of having to provide for that family and keep it all running in a board. I actually have a follow-on question to that as well because I think we talk a lot about um, the pressure 
of providing for a family and that might be the the unpaid responsibilities of the person staying at home but also then also the pressures of those bringing the finances in to raise a family I just wanted to touch on something called the sandwich generation which seems to be becoming a well a more common phenomenon and it's um thanks to the aging population and women waiting to have children a little bit later and obviously we've mentioned here about freezing eggs so there is a deliberate choice for women to wait a little bit later on in life to have start their families um we're beginning to see with because of that a growth in something called sandwich generation the sandwich generation means having a twin responsibility for the sick disabled or elderly relatives as well as your children um, and according to the ONS 2021 data, it affects around 3% of the UK population at the moment, and that's 1.3 million people. And what those stats showed is that more than 72% of the sandwich generation are people aged between 35 and 54, uh, and 62% of those are women. That's me. There you go. I am the sandwich generation, yeah. Then my mum had a massive hyper at the weekend, so you're rushing up to try and see her, look after her, worries of whether she, what's going to happen to her, thinking about moving in with me. I've got children that are 25, trying to get onto the property ladder, needing help and support financially to do that. And I am trying to support my own family and bring it up. And it's, it is a real challenge. And I think it's getting harder, definitely getting a lot harder, because I can't imagine my son is a pharmacist and he earns decent money. But even then, getting onto the property ladder is a challenge at the moment. And how do you start to move them on and move out? And unless they meet someone, that's the other biggest thing we've got at the moment is that people, it's not easy to meet someone. We're all working from home, whatever age I've got myself, I'm single, children that are single, friends that are single, and finding people is tough. So it's not always easy to go and buy with someone. Um, and, you know, my mom is getting older. She's 67. She's, um, yeah, flat out on the floor at the weekend. My, my sister had rushed over because she'd not been answering the phone for a couple of hours. And what do you do? Do you move them in with you? Then you've got the challenge of what that brings. <laughs> yeah. Then you've also got your children that need, still need support and going to for the future. So um, it is getting harder. And I think it's going to become a bigger problem as, you know, grandparents are doing a lot of childcare for children. Now, I've had my youngest had some friends over and um, there were three boys around the age of 10. All, all their grandparents brought them over. It wasn't because the parents were working and couldn't do that. So it's amazing how much parents and grandparents are stepping up into the fold. So I think it's a, a challenge at the moment in all, all aspects of the sandwich generation, I think. But they say, isn't it, that a lot of people, um, well, if you're looking back a couple of generations now, there was always the expectation that there'd be someone at home who could look after all the unpaid care work and because a wage would be able to cover the cost of, of a home, a car, a wife and children. Whereas today, that's just not possible. And so what you're finding is that both couples or um, both members of a both members of a couple, couples are struggling now to, as you said, like kind of start families without that community support. And that community support could be grandparents or, you know, local friends who have children of a similar age, um, kind of creating those support units. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, Asian families were always extended. So when I moved in, when I got married originally, um, I moved into a house, three-bed terrace, and it was my sister-in-law, brother-in-law was there, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, and then my mother-in-law's mother-in-law was there. And we all lived together, and we okay. were bed-popping, and it was just really, really strange. And But then it worked because you've got all the wages going into one house. Um, I, you know, the expectation was that when I worked, I would give my wage to my mother-in-law. I mean, she's lovely, and she never took it, but that oh, was wow. the expectation over the years. But now I think what happens is that 
the younger generation are becoming more independent and wanting to separate away. But then that has its own challenges because you haven't got that one person cooking and you're doing it all yourself. So you've got the um, the costs of it and the impact of being on your own and living independently. So there's pros and cons against both of it, really. Well, I've heard um, I've heard stories, and again, you might be able to clarify a bit more. But um, like Indian families also are expected to gift their children quite significant amounts of money during a wedding um, to help them, like with their new start of life, and that can sometimes compromise the pension pot that they have or, or the savings that they would then end up retiring on. Do you find there's that different of, cultures? Yeah, there's a lot of status that goes with weddings for Asian families, I think, and you know, the bigger the wedding, the more you have, the better. But you know, it's you put yourself under that pressure. And for me, I would never do that. It's not something that for me, I think if you're going to get married, the two people themselves should pay. And so, and I expect a parental contribution. Yes, that's fine. But the, the pressure has always been on parents and from when we were a lot younger. But what's changed is the extravagance of weddings now. Because when we were younger, you know, the cost wasn't as much. We used to cook at home or the grannies used to do it. But now you're getting caterers and the added pressure on parents is then that's again the sandwich generation because you have children the expectation has always been there that the girl's side will pay for the wedding and the guys you know just turn up and it's just not fair and I think women and men are wanting equality you can't have it all you've got to all party partake at all levels I think so yeah it's challenging I agree um, so I have a question, but we obviously spoke a little bit about divorce earlier, and that can be a, a kind of turning point for a lot of people. Do you find in your experience that divorce can be a catalyst for both parties taking a greater interest in their financial well-being? And are there any other situations that might prompt someone to seek more information about their finances? I think divorce and separation has, you have to step up and you've got to take control of your finances. I think at that point, you know, you I see a lot of women that will come in or men that come in and and you always say to them, it's one part and you've got to try and split it. But then at, at that point, a lot of either party, whether it may or not, may not know what's going even out of the bank accounts, what they're paying for, what the mortgage rates are. They just don't have a clue because they've just plodded along and there's nothing wrong in that. But I think it's about communication. I don't think as a society we communicate very well about these matters. I think now over the last five years, we've seen a real shift around financial coaching and masterminds and visionary manifesting all those things are now coming to the forefront but before we never used to do all those things it was just habitual process structure we just went through the motions I think I see a lot of people coming in and thinking oh my god what am I going to do how am I going to survive can I afford to leave it's that bit it's a bit where you know I see a lot of people having to stay together because they can't afford to leave and that's a sad thing, really. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I feel that I see a lot of clients that come to when they're single, having received money, and that find, people find difficulties that, you know, you're saving, saving, saving for a rainy day, but that rainy day is never going to come now. But it's the acceptance that the rainy day is not coming and that I can now go and spend so I can go on a business trip class to Australia to see my children because... I've worked this hard for it and I've lost my husband now. He wanted me to have this. And I lost a client this weekend at uh, just over Christmas Eve, he died. And he spent all his life just worrying that if he wasn't, because his wife had never worked, that if he was never able to work or provide for her, that she'd be okay. That was his only thing in life. And it was so sad because he died so suddenly. And, you know, I think he did all, that's all he wanted for her. And, and she'll be fine. But it's, 
just being able for the person that's surviving to accept that sometimes is that they've gone and they've left you all this when they've struggled all their life. And sometimes it's 60s, 70s when they're still working or trying to keep saving. Not sure what for. Also, I think this is a, is a that that's a really good example of how the sort of traditional and uh, the traditional ways of, of couples dealing with money, that the, that the guy is the one that provides and the woman's the one that stays at home and all of that kind of stuff led to a man spending his life worrying and and carrying on working for as long as he could to support his wife and actually that's miserable for him it's not just not fun for her it's miserable for him and it's like what if if we change the way it's this is the thing with all things around equality that if things become equal uh for everyone it's better um, and it would have probably been better for him as well. Like if if he hadn't had to think like that and hadn't had to worry. And thank you know, obviously as you said, thankfully she will be okay and she's got money and stuff. But what a yeah, it's really tough. It is. It's very difficult. And I think the, the stereotypes of having to put the pressure on put one person to provide for a family is difficult. I mean, I think that is really hard. And I think it's being able to say it's okay for you to both to have a career. But sometimes it's not easy if you both want to have a career and you want children and you want a family and all those things that go with it, there's got to be some form of compromise and sacrifice along the way. And nobody wants to have those difficult, unsexy conversations, I think. We all just want to be happy and for <laughs> it all to work out. So what I also find really interesting is that um, when it comes to, so there was a stat that I read, there was a 2020 study by EY, and they said that only 15% of those surveyed told EY that they would list life or health insurance as a top three priority to protect their financial well-being, compared with just compared with 77% prioritising savings. So people are prepared to have money put aside, but not necessarily to invest in an almost a certainty, right? Like we will die at some point and there'll be people in our lives who get affected by that. Do you find that when clients come to you that they wish to only insure one party or insure both, but in equal portions? And the reason I ask that is because it sometimes feels like um, we're very quick to insure the person who's earning, but we fail to recognize the value of the person who's not earning money. But actually, if the stay at home parent suddenly died, well, then there's the cost of childcare or there's the cost of taking time out of work to look after your children. So it feels like that value is sometimes ignored. It is, and I will always say that's that's an important part to ensure because trying to get a driver to take your children to school while you run your business and looking after the children and all that thing is very, very expensive. And so life cover and, and health cover right now is really important. You know, I'm seeing a lot of clients paying for private operations, um, hip operations and things like that. They're costing 15, 16, 17,000 pounds, but they can't afford to wait. They want the quality of life. But if you had some decent health insurance, then I think, that's an important part we need to discuss right now because the NHS is where it is. I can't see it getting better in the near future. We need to take action if you can and you know start to take control rather than just letting things happen and drift. And nobody wants to think about death, but it happens so quickly and it's never going to happen to you. And there was a guy who's quite high up at Quilter that's just died and he was only 56 and he was walking with his friends um, in the Lake District. And you just think, just, just just gone just like that and you just don't know and I think when you're saving for retirement it's making sure that you're looking at the present at the same time and it's filling the bank with memories and not just money and that's that's one of my biggest strap line is that you know my children I spend a lot of time doing stuff with them because the things I buy them will come and go but the moments that you spend with them is what they'll remember 
But um, and so that's why life insurance will help in the end if you're not there. But it's also thinking about what are you going to do to have an impact while you're alive? And what are you doing right now? Are you busting a gut to keep working and not seeing your children? Mm. And, and one part is doing all the childcare. And ultimately, where is the equality in that? You know, it's not just a pink job and a boo job. You know, yeah. they're, they're all just... They're Whatever just they try and tell us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so just say we have had a happy life and we make it to pension age. Um, when we think about unpaid care responsibilities and kind of the ongoing toll around intensive caregiving, um, we, I think it's worth having a conversation around the hit that it could have on an individual's pension. So not only can caregiving responsibilities increase the odds of early retirement, as we've spoken about looking after elderly parents, for instance, but time out the workforce will have a significant impact on their income in retirement over time. Is there something that people can do to protect their pensions whilst they're not in paid employment if they're having to take on these unpaid care responsibilities? Not so much you can take to protect, but I think it's also having an actual um, awareness that it's having an impact. A lot of people don't realise when they're in the situation what an impact it will have in the future because they're not thinking about that. It's a bit like when you get divorced and a lot of women stereotypically will just want the house and they won't think about the pension because they're like, oh, well, that's in the future. I'll deal with that. But ultimately, sometimes the pension parts may be worth more than the house itself anyway, but mm. we're just not aware of it. And it's being aware of what's important to you at, and bringing it to the forefront of what your mind is and thinking, well, what do I need to address right now? And then what can I do to make up for it? So I might be having five years off, but can I make those pension contributions up? It's really understanding what income you want in retirement and then how much of a pot you need and regularly reviewing how far you're off and not leaving it into your... 40, 50, 60, and thinking, oh, sugar, I'm here, I am, and I've got anything to live on. Is there uh, a minimum contribution that's required to have a decent standard of living um, at a pension age? There isn't a minimum, no. I think it depends on individuals' circumstances and what assets they've got compared to... What, what... decent means to you, right? Yeah, because that's I see clients that are spending £20,000, £30,000 on holidays a year. But are you going to keep doing that in retirement? And are you willing to cut that now in order to retire five years early. And that's the importance of what cash flow brings to a client. Is it, okay, you might want to retire at 55 or 60, but then I'm going to get a pot of 500 grand and you're at 350. What are you going to do over the next 10 years to get it to where you need to be, for example? Those figures are not accurate figures. I'm just taking off the top of my head. But yeah, yeah. you know, those are the sorts of things we need to be thinking about is understanding where your pots are, what are they worth? And yeah, but pensions aren't sexy, are they? They're just very boring. <laughs> but it's also interesting, isn't it? Because um, there's been uh, there was a lot of research all about like mitigating factors to help people who might find themselves in a position where they're not getting they're not in paid employment. So obviously, if we're looking at state pensions. Isn't there like there are a minimum of fifty five years of contributions that you need to give to get the full state pension? Um, and then if you're choosing to take time out or, you know, maybe that's not necessarily a choice, but it's something that you're having to do. Um, and they were saying that actually maybe the threshold for employer auto enrollment could be lowered to capture more part time working women because. Um, I think the best challenge with auto enrollment is, is that you have the option. And I think a lot of people don't see the benefits of retirement planning. So they just opt out. I see a lot of clients that opt out and don't think. Oh. Whereas younger, when I was younger, it just went out of my wages and I had no option, never thought about it. And now I've got a decent pension pot because it was just done for me. Where now, when there's so much pressure around money, bills, childcare, interest rates, everything is coming on top of us. 
And the first thing to go is pension contributions because we can make that up in the future. Life insurance, because it's never going to happen to me. Critical illness cover because, oh, well, I've had it for seven years and I've never had to claim. But the moment something, you know, it's those things that go first, unfortunately. And that's when it's got, the client doesn't understand the benefit of what they're doing and paying. And that's the last thing that should go. But people just don't see it. But, you know, we're in a position where some people just can't afford to pay into pensions at the moment. And, you know, it, that's where we're at, I think. It's an, a, a challenge for us all. The 2020 study by Unbiased of 2,000 non-retired UK adults indicated that women in particular are more likely to be unprepared when it comes to private pensions. What's more, a 2018 report shows the average pension put for a 65-year-old woman in the UK is just £35,800, one-fifth that of the average man of a similar age. Yeah, which is quite shocking. As you said, then, like if you're in a if you're in a relationship with with a man who's got that that pot of money five times the size of yours, that's a nice situation to be in. But if for whatever reason you you divorced or you no longer have that, I think the biggest fear for for people is they're the cohabiting people. Could we have more and more cohabiting people in the world because they don't want to commit to a relationship, don't can't afford a wedding? I was damn, damn the wedding industry and yeah. being forced to be married to get get these things. Yeah. I am forever annoyed about I, my my last partner. I was with eighteen years, and if we, uh, thankfully, you know, when we broke up, we didn't we didn't have a house and we didn't have things that we needed to split. And actually, I think it all would have been fine. But we had very we would have had very few rights because yeah, we weren't well, no, I was in a relationship for that long, and, and it's very we we got a house together. But luckily, if we hadn't been married, I'd have lost everything, and I wouldn't be sitting here right now. So for me, I'm thankful I didn't get married. But for a lot of people, getting married is is good because you reduce IHT. You use reduce. So I've been to, to a couple recently. You know, we talk about tax planning. Why do you get married? And they just looked at me as if to say, "Well, we've been eighteen, to, but eighteen years together. We don't need to." I says, "Yeah, but you know what you want is you want to be okay, not to lose forty percent. It's a good opportunity to think about it." But cohabiting couples are the biggest ones at the moment that are really going to struggle, especially if one is is an imbalance of work and money, and because the Normally, a woman that's at home looking at the children is really going to struggle to get out of that situation. And I think that's a sad bit. And then once you're in it, because you've not had the conversation early enough in the relationship, and then you've got children, and then you're in it, you can't get out. And that's where the cohesive control and the manipulation starts, and then you lose your self-worth, and it's just a spiral. And I can see it with people, and it's very difficult to... It's easy when you're on the outside looking in, saying, you know, you've just got to get a job, you've got to get yourself out of it. But when you're in it, to pick yourself up and get out is tough. Um, but yeah, it's it's challenging. <laughs> well, this takes me back to a stat that came out earlier this year. So, um, Wonderman Thompson um, did a campaign with HSBC in June of 2022, and they said that economic control occurs in 95% of all domestic abuse cases. And it's that idea of like sometimes you just can't leave. You know, it's it's not always as simple as that. And as you said, if you're codependent or if you've been put in a vulnerable position, sometimes the option is that you have to stay because that's either that's your children in the same home as you or you don't have the money to be able to start up again on your own. And it's difficult, you know, it's a lifestyle that you get accustomed to, you know. Um, the man's probably done well, the, they can afford all the private school and all the lovely holidays and stuff. And the feeling that you're going to have to tear that family apart, you're going to take your children away from that lifestyle, you're going to go and live in a council flat, and got the children and and that is a real pull for a parent and it's I have seen friends and clients in this situation and it is challenging I don't know how 
I mean, I was lucky in my situation that I was able to carry on working. But when my partner left recently, my business had only been running two years and I just couldn't get a mortgage. You know, it was really difficult. I couldn't get a mortgage. Luckily, I had family that were able to step in and help out. But and I was able to carry on. But as a financial planner, I was on my knees and I was thinking, I should have had this shit sorted. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? But, you know, I bounced back. But um there's not many people that are in my position that can do it, I think, unfortunately. So it is, it's, and I'd only been running two years. So it was sort of really challenging times because you've got the bit, the challenge of building your own business and you just jack it all in and think, you know, well, I'm going to get a job because I now make my 50 grand a year or 60, whatever it is, yeah. and I'll get pension contributions and I can do it. And it's just easy. It's easy. It's simple to yeah. hold your nerve and think I've got to carry on and, you know, got to carry on and not give up. It's tough. But when you're in it, you don't see, you just think I'm just taking days at a time and moving yeah. forward. But um, yeah, there's a lot of family situations, aren't there? If it's any consolation, women regret divorce less than men do. Um, this came from Paul Doolin, who is a professor of behavioural science at the London School of Economics. He released a book called Happily Ever After, The Myth of the Perfect Life in 2019. And then there's this great stat, um, great quote, sorry, and he says, we do have some good longitude data following the same people over time, but I'm going to do a massive disservice to that science and just say, if you're a man, you should probably get married. If you're a woman, don't bother. <laughs> and then continue. But my relationship ended. And walked um, out, come back, and you think, well... Okay, that's fine. But now I look back, it's probably the best thing that happened to me because I still survived and carried on and I'm probably stronger now than I was at the time. But at the time when you're in it, it just feels as the world's falling apart, doesn't it? And it's hard to think of a life after that. Um, okay, I'm going to finish on one last thing because I think it's important. So we've spoken a little bit about state pensions, but now we've also got private pensions. Lena, you touched on this idea that actually when it goes through economic hardship, actually it's one of the first things that people opt out of. But you say that's probably not the best thing to do. Um, we found that uh, this, this is crazy. So the Pension Policy Institute in 2019 showed that currently there are 50% more women than men heading towards retirement without any private pension savings at all. Uh, 1.2 million women in their 50s have no private pension wealth and hence will rely on the state pension system alone um, and their partner if they have one to provide a retirement income. This represents approximately 5% of all women in the UK. That was a 2019 stat. Is there any factors that you might be able to highlight that might explain why women are lagging behind men in pension planning, um, obviously, other than choosing to opt out for desperate times? I think it's a mixture of everything. We've got a perfect storm at the moment. I think people are um, obviously children and caring for the children, picture out of the, the career gap. I mean, I was parenting part time for a lot of my ch younger, ch older children's lives. So I think that has a big impact. It's the ability to understand that it's an important part of your life is to prepare for your pension age and I think we've been so reliant upon pension, state pension for now I don't think we can rely upon it for, for especially us I'm mm. 47 I don't rely upon my state pension at all because I just don't think it's going to be there and if it is it's going to be 70 odd plus um we can yeah. see the current situation as a nation what's going on there's just no money there is just no money we're just kicking forward every problem into the future and not really dealing with anything so I think it's just generally that people, women are earning a lot less than men. Mm -hmm. I think that's always the gender pay gap has always been there. It's slowly closing, but, you know, it's going to take another 10, 15 years at least for it to be equalised, I think. And I think all those are contributing factors. Um, and women just generally are, if they've got children, that's their main focus. And that was my, it's still really, it's the most important part of my life is being a good parent to them and, and they take up a lot of energy and sometimes pensions and working, they're just not a priority when you're in your 20s, 30s. 
40s is when they're now in their 2025 they don't need you anymore you think okay what am I going to do with my life and by that time you're thinking I'm not sure I can earn what I need to do to make these pension contributions so it's a challenge I know that the uh, the post-2016 state pension system was designed in a way that was meant to bring more equality to women. Does it help address the pension gap as it claims to do, or is there still limitations to that system? I think the challenge is still there. I mean, the fact that we've, um, we might have uh, equalised pension age is just, it's just another a clog to a, a wheels to a situation that just is a broken system. I think that's the problem. It's, it's a broken system, state pension is, and I think... Unfortunately, the country is so reliant upon that, that people aren't thinking that I need to take control of my own financial future. Yeah. I also think like we spoke about this a couple of episodes ago about um, the fact that uh, childcare also isn't taken particularly seriously within the UK. So early year funding um, was missed off the autumn budget. And I think there's a couple of things coming through at the moment, but no one's really seen um, too much substance coming off the back end of uh, of our government to help secure more funding or more security for new parents and I think that that in itself keeps new parents out of the workforce um, which will always have a knock-on effect to pensions anyway. Um, do, so. They are benefiting how you know if you earn £60,000 or more then you don't get the child benefit however if you as a couple one of you earns more but if, if you both earn less than 60 then you get it how, how is that fair? You know, you like to have a joint income of the family of 100 grand, but then you still get it because you're both earning 50k each. And how is this all equal? I just don't understand. I mean, there's just no, I don't know who makes these rules up, but there doesn't seem to be any thought process behind supporting working parents. And there's enough, there's a lot of research going on. So again, we've spoken about um, pregnant and screwed a few times, but, you know, there are, there are groups of people out there doing writing policies, you know, and presenting these to the government and say, look, we're doing the hard work for you. We're doing the research. We're, we're showing you what we need. And as you said, like, who, who is then making these final decisions? And who yeah. are they benefiting? You know, they benefit, you know, the rich. They, they benefit um, men. <laughs> they don't tend to benefit the people that they're, they're aiming to benefit. Yeah. So it's a lot of the, there's no common sense used sometimes. I think that's the problem. We just need some common sense from time to time. And it just doesn't appear to be apparent. No. Rhiannon, you, got, you took yourself off mute. Was there a final thing? Uh, yeah, I, no, I think I was just going to say um, when uh, Lena was just talking, we were saying about, you know, women not having a, a, a private pension and women not having various other things. I think like women generally need to, we all need to understand money more and maybe rethink about what we did, what our parents were doing and what we're happy to do and start to learn a bit more ourselves if we don't know these things but it sometimes feels like it's another thing that we could potentially put pressure on ourselves about and feel like we're failing um yeah. and you know when you're already a working mum you've got kids you're doing all these other things you're caring for your parents you're doing various stuff it's yeah it's another thing that I feel like could be a like oh I've not done well enough and I don't it, want people to feel like that. People don't address it because they just feel that I haven't. But the people are if you once you take control and start to budget and start to take an interest and start to just take, it's not going to be a heavy thing. It's just taking one step in the right direction. It's just a bit like you know um, health and fitness, and you just got to start. Once you start, you start to get momentum and you start to understand. At least you are forewarned and forearmed into the as you go into the future, rather than just ignoring something. Um, and as we know, through COVID, life has just passed us by. The last couple of years have just gone so fast. 
It's really made us hopefully think about what we want. And there's lots of free resources out there, lots of courses, lots of people are doing um, workshops that are free. Just going on and just spending a bit of time, you'll realise that you're not the only one. A lot of the time we think, I'm the only one that's got this and not got it sorted. But there's a whole load of people out there, men and women, that haven't got it sorted. Um, and are just muddling their way through. And life does get messy at times, but we've just got to try and make the best of it, as we are all doing so. Absolutely. I also think there are a couple of things that just came to mind there. So one is I think we need to get um, start looking at this earlier in life. So not waiting for a catalyst moment such as a divorce or a death in the family before we start taking an interest in not only our finances, but if you're sharing finances, where are those finances saved? Like what debts do we have as a couple? And, you know, what, what kind of responsibilities are on, on me now um, as, a, as an individual to, to carry the burden of decisions made by a couple? Um, I think also that... Uh, so not only is it about taking an interest, but I think talking to people about money. And I know that there's been a few people who've encouraged women to, to talk to their friends about how much they earn so that people can start to understand about what wages that they should be on or what they should be negotiating at in the workplaces. Because the whole time we keep that very quiet, it makes it very difficult for us to know our, our worth in the marketplace. Um, and I know there's a huge push at the moment for job descriptions to disclose how much um, a job is worth before, before interviewing. I think it's um, that age old, isn't it? Whereas a man applies for a job, they've got three of the ten things, where a woman is, feels like they've got to have all ten of the things before they apply. And I think the only way to negotiate sometimes up the pay scale is by moving. But we yes. are very, we all like safe and security as women. You know, if you've got a family behind you, then you're putting more at risk. And I think women are less risk averse. And it's proven that, you know, if a woman is talking to a woman, a female financial advisor, then they are prepared to take a bit more risk and they understand it a bit more. And there's a lot of um, data behind that as to why women feel more empowered when they're talking to another woman. But also, uh, when it comes to work, you know, if there's a 15 or 20 grand pay scale, I wonder, like, that risk averseness, whether women will go, well, I don't want to price myself out of the market, whereas a man's more likely to just go straight at the top. I've given up on that, and I'm like, no, I've decided <laughs> how much I'm worth now, and I'm asking for it, and if it's too much, well, then I won't work there. Uh, or they'll come up or they'll say, oh, we can manage five grand less than that or whatever. I think like it's one of those ask and they can only say no. But I do think we worry about pricing ourselves out of the market. Yeah, I think a lot of it's about self-worth and self-love. And you've got to find that. And I don't think we're ever taught that as children or as adults. It's that accepting who you are for what you are and what you bring to the table. And I always put myself down and think, oh, you know, it's just another word. But to get to where I am really inspiring and but you just don't you just don't want to talk about it whereas men would be out there all the time I hate all the social media posting I hate all of that stuff but if you don't oh, I love it Lena I love and it we're it's gonna so do it for great. you now we're just gonna yeah. we're just do it for you and please anyone listen if you're on LinkedIn if you've done something good in your week put it on LinkedIn it's so it's so refreshing like again being in that in that ceremony and watching you go on stage I think there was like perhaps you and another woman maybe a third that was mm -hmm. it Mm. Up, up for your up for the fellow you know and that was incredible and like yeah no absolutely share your successes like do, put those yeah. online we'll like them we'll share them for you yeah and I think that's it is that you just don't want to do I hate social media I hate having to put myself out there but the reality is that I am my business and that's what people want and um, they want to see you as a person because they're only buying you they're not buying the product they're buying you as a person and what you bring to that relationship mm -hmm. okay I've got a couple of final questions for you Lena one is we've spoken a little bit um, a second ago about if you want some information, there is some places that you can go online. There are courses that you can take. You know, there is 
resources available if you would like to find out more about your um, about your finances if people wanted more specific advice more specialist advice how much would somebody like you or how much would somebody expect to pay for a financial planner such as yourself you don't have to give us like an exact to the pound figure but roughly how much would something like your advice cost I think it depends upon what sort of advice you need do you just need a financial plan do you need the investments and pension advice so it's always a lot of our a lot of us will offer you a discovery meeting complimentary and I think it's really important that you sit down and talk to spend that 45 minutes getting the knowledge of a, of a conversation with the financial planner because then you'll know what you're paying for and what you're going to get from it because I could say it's going to be three thousand pounds but ultimately the next person could say five thousand pounds but it's whether you connect with that person and they're going to give you what you need I think that's the important part it's not just about oh I want to consolidate my pensions I don't really do that if you want to do that, then you can do that online yourself and save yourself a lot of money. <laughs> if you build financial planning, get going with your finances and get a secure financial future, then give me a call. Or, you know, there's lots of people out there who can you can speak to. Um, and look at it as an investment, not a payment. It is. It is an investment in yourself. That's the biggest thing you can do. It's the investment in yourself and your financial future. Um, and over time, you'll see that, you know, it will be worth it. But it's sort of getting off. And getting up on doing it um and there's a cost to not getting advice that's the other thing you know can you afford not Very to receive true. advice because you're missing out on lots of different things that you may not have thought about um and just sharing a conversation right just open your eyes a lot what is out there and it's not all doom and gloom and you're in a great position and you might walk away thinking god i didn't know my pension was worth that or what i could do with it or where i could be in five years yeah. so it's all about being positive and thinking yes i can do this and where can i get to this. Okay, well, the last thing I would like to say is actually a little nod to your codependency series. And I know you've also got a divorce series. Um, so I just want to say, well, really a big thank you for raising awareness around these things, uh, such as codependency, divorce and retirement planning. Do you find it particularly difficult helping people while without providing advice if they're not a client? Because I know that there are, there's a limitation to what you can say um, when they're not a client. I might do a lot of financial coaching and I think sometimes that is becoming more apparent than actually the physical financial regulated advice bit. So we do financial coaching and financial advice and it's a great way of, so I'm quite good at just giving some pointers and I'd rather do that even if it's a couple of occasions just to have a conversation with somebody and they get the feel for being invested in the process because I don't want to take clients on that aren't invested and I'll send a fact find out before I've even met a client because if they're invested in their financial future, they'll be happy to fill the format. It's boring. It's laborious. <laughs> I don't want to sit there and talk about it and go through it. But once they've taken time to go through that, then we know they're invested in the process. So um, it's definitely worth going through the process and starting to think about. I forgot the question now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find it difficult helping people without providing advice if they're not a client? Um, and by some things you've managed to find a way around that give too much away and I think that's another thing I don't I really like talk about fees I just don't like talking about fees but you know I think I give a lot away for free because um, I really want to help people just to be get on their way um, as I said before it's not about the money to me it's about building a business for, for me but also helping clients become the best they can in their lives financially and um that's what's important and that's why I love what I do because there's no sales targets there's no pressure under you've got to take this many clients on and do this I only take on clients that I know that I can add value to or I'll just point them in the right direction um but yeah there's a big gap out there so it's 
we need more advisors and we need more women. Old. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I may, I'd like to finish this episode. We usually do a raise a glass of wine and um, and we have a piece of little piece of homework. Rhiannon, I'm going to offer up a few and you can add to it if you'd like. No worries, um, yeah. The things I'd like to add, uh, or the things I'd like to cover as the last thing is, is some, I'd like you to raise a glass of wine and get rid of these misconceptions. One is that you can't apply for insurance whilst pregnant. The second is you don't need life insurance if you're not the breadwinner. The third misconception is that what works for your spouse automatically works for you. And the fourth is that your husband's death in service is all we need. So those are the four misconceptions that I want people to, to rethink going forward. Those are great points. I think it's really important. We take a lot for granted upon just death in service, and 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 a lot of people nowadays are surviving death, uh, surviving things like <laughs> surviving death. That's incredible. Surviving <laughs> illnesses like um, cancer and strokes and heart attacks. And I think that's why critical illness is really important. It's not just all about death. It's about whether the ability to be to continue like your lifestyle if something happens to you that's life debilitating. And I think mine, uh, my homework is grab a glass of wine and uh, talk about money with your partner or and with everyone for a number of different reasons. Uh, there's that whole thing. Don't talk about money, politics or religion. And I think we should talk about all of them. Yeah. And um, I think but money in particular seems to be crass, isn't it? To talk about money, about how you earn, how much you earn, because it's then to be seen to be bragging. But it's about normalising money and being able to talk confidently in a safe environment and have those conversations because I spoke to him yesterday who would normally have never spoken to me about finances um, and he said at the end of the conversation I'm really glad I spoke to you about it because it's really helped me just cl clarify what's going on in my head because my partner isn't great is it? she doesn't really enjoy it so it was just nice to get a conversation and I think it's just a, you do feel better nobody's done and doing any better or any worse than you just in your own lane driving your own car and I wonder also for those people who have got kids, you said right at the beginning, you said, oh, you know, we have this whole thing around how we see money as children. You know, money doesn't grow on trees and all this kind of stuff. Maybe there's a bit of a change around the way we talk, talk to children about money and uh, and then maybe even speak to girls in particular about money. And when you go into jobs and how you negotiate your um, your pay and all that kind of stuff and changing the way kids understand money it's, yeah it's the language it's not budgeting it's having a spending plan so once you change time and terminology it's about not about scrimping and saving it's about thinking okay 20 percent of my salary if you can afford it i'm going to save 30 percent on um just ascend on essentials and 50 percent on the essentials and just really trying to break it down to something as simple as that can really give you a good starting block but there's lots of information out there available amazing amazing lena thank you so much this has been incredible. We are going to drop a couple of links below um, to Lena. And uh, if you'd like to obviously find out any more information or get in touch with, um, with Lena about your own finances, then we'd highly recommend that you do so. Um, was there any last things that you'd like to say, Lena, that you haven't had a chance to say today? No, just thanks for having me on. It's been great to have a conversation and raise a glass of wine. My favourite part of life. <laughs> <laughs> The Unfair Effect is not sponsored, so if you liked our show, please show your support by liking, subscribing and sharing on all your favourite social media platforms. We're on Twitter at The Unfair Effect, we're on Instagram and Facebook at The Unfair Effect Podcast, and you can email us theunfairsex at gmail.com.
Just to recap our opening message, we are grateful to Lena Patel for taking the time to join the Unfair Sex to talk about codependency, pensions and the sandwich generation. Whilst Lena had some incredibly important things to say, the FCA prevents Lena from offering financial advice in this forum. With this in mind, if something we discussed today happened to resonate with your personal situation, please note this was not the Unfair Sex or Lena Patel offering financial advice. And we ask all listeners to seek professional advice and conduct your own independent research before any action is taken. Should you require more information about UK pensions, benefits or other financial specific information, we recommend heading to the UK government website for the latest updates. If you seek more specialist advice for your finances, we recommend heading to imbiased.co.uk to find your local financial advisor or reach out to Lena Patel, who I'm sure will be happy to help. We have also shared Lena's details in the synopsis, so if you'd like to learn more about her codependency series or work with her as a client. As always, thank you for listening.